evening. Before we take up this text, I'd like to remind you of something perhaps that we're not often reminded of, and that is that the conscience and the word of God, though they often function in similar ways, they do so to two very different ends. What I mean by that is that the function of conscience in man has, of course, that purpose to to drive men and women to see that before God, that is standing under his law, they are inexcusable. But it's important, friend, for us to recognize that that is not only the function, but that is the purpose of conscience. That's its final end. Its end in the breast of men is to drive them to the point where they say they are guilty. And it's important for me to remind you that it's to that end and no further that conscience is directed. The word of God will do something quite similar. The word of God will come and like conscience it will plead God's case with sinners. Bring men under its sound so that all the world will be stopped and come, and come confessing themselves guilty before God. But that's not all that the word of God is, is doing there. Its purpose in doing so is to drive men to the Lord Jesus Christ. It goes in that sense a step further than conscience by nature could. Scripture then comes to us in a text like ours this evening, certainly laying us bare before the Lord our God, certainly exposing sin in his people. But friend, it's important for me to say to you now as your pastor and and as the word of God itself urges us to remember that the purpose of that is to drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ. His purpose is not to leave us there where the natural man, his conscience could only take him. But to take him that step, that blessed step further and, and to lodge him in the Lord Jesus Christ. My friend, if we hear this text this evening and we're not so driven, we've not heard the text to write. We've not heard the prophet as we ought. And so it should be our prayer that the Lord directs us in such a way this evening. This is, of course, a text that is searching. It's searching because you find that in these first verses of this text, the prophet is giving an indictment to the visible church. And this second indictment that begins there at the 10th verse, you remember, is addressed to Judah, but addressed to Judah in a way that is quite profound. It's to the rulers of Sodom and to the people of Gomorrah. It's an excoriating indictment. He's saying, you who are the visible church, you have fallen so far, you've engaged in such great defection, that morally speaking, you look, you resemble more like the rulers of Sodom and the people of Gomorrah than you do the children of Israel. It's a striking indictment. And as you leave, as you leave the 15th verse, you remember that that indictment comes to something of an end, where there is a sentence. The sentence, of course, is conditional. If they do not repent, it will be the case, as you read there, that when they spread forth their hands, that is in solemn prayer, the Lord says, I will hide mine eyes from you. When you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. 
Our text this evening picks up on that note. Our text is verses 16 to 20. And it is a continuation of what was begun in in the 10th verse. But it goes beyond the first indictment. In fact, we ought to understand that this is something of of a different document, if you will. You see, the first indictment, going from verse 2 to verse 9, is one that only ends with with heaven and earth bearing witness to the guiltiness of Judah. But the second indictment ends in verses 16 to 20 on an entirely different note. What I mean by that is what you find in verses 16 and 17, first of all. You have an exhortation. Again, something you don't find in the first indictment. The exhortation is really supposed to be read as a single exhortation, but with five parts. And you can read over them there as you see it before you. After the 17th verse, you have something else. Again, something that's unique to this indictment, and that is you have an offer. An offer for cleansing. And and a cleansing that you and I are supposed to understand is both forensic and renovative. Or if you like, both legal and transforming. Cleansing them from guilt, as well as purifying them from pollution. And then again, uniquely, in verses 19 and 20, the second indictment comes after that offer with promises and threatenings annexed. If they comply with the terms now made out to them by God, then they will eat of the good of the land. And if not, they will perish. But what is central to this, this last portion of the second indictment? Is that what you find in the first part of verse 18? And it is very much central. The words are, come now, let us reason together. Literally rendered, you could say it's, now let us deal reasonably with one another. And it is cohortative in the sense that, that here it's as though God is, is summoning them to deal with him, and he will deal with them in a certain way, namely reasonably. But it's important for us to understand, of course, that theologically, this is not cohortative. Really, men are being exhorted to deal reasonably with God, because God is always reasonable. Even though it's rendered in such a way as to include the Lord, it's really an exhortation to Judah to come to reason as it were, to to leave foolishness behind. Now is a time for clear-headedness. Now is a time for direct dealing. Now, this exhortation looks both backward and forward. It looks backward in the sense that here, the Lord is really urging Judah to take with the indictment that the Lord has given In other words, to acknowledge that the Lord has been reasonable in his dealings with her. That 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 which the Lord here excoriates, that which he condemns in them, is certainly found in them and is justly condemned. In other words, it is only reasonable that when the Lord comes to this church, that, that they take with that charge of hypocrisy that the prophet tenders to them. In that sense, friend, the exhortation could be read much like you find it later on in this prophecy. In chapter 41, where the Lord says, Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the king of Jacob. In that text, see if I've been unjust in any of my dealings with you. See if this charge is unjust in any of its parts. 
In that sense, it looks backward. Can Judah bring any defense against these indictments? Let us reason together, says the Lord. Deal reasonably with that which you've heard. But it also looks forward in the sense, friend, that he is also saying that this is a time for clear-headedness because of what's to come. In other words, he is urging them to respond reasonably to what follows. And what follows in verse 18 is that offer of mercy, the offer of cleansing, the offer that notwithstanding all of their transgressions, they may yet know his goodness, may yet eat of the good of the land. And so, friend, this text urges the church here to take, to own the charge of hypocrisy. And hypocrisy, you know, perhaps, it comes from the Greek. It's the idea of an actor, somebody who puts on, as it were, a mask. Their exterior looks one way, while their interior, what what is behind the mask, is something totally different. That's precisely what the Lord is saying of these people. He's saying you have an exterior that is well washed. To use the language of the New Testament, whitewashed. But inward you're but a sepulcher, a picture of death, of abomination. And after that, friend, the, the urgent cry of this text is after owning the charge, acknowledging that it's justly given, the call is to take then the offer of mercy as it is here tendered to them. What we find in this text, friend, it's staggering. It's perhaps something that's simple, well known to us, but something we ought to appreciate. In so many words, the Lord here is showing us that he offers mercy even to great hypocrites. These verses teach us that the Lord offers mercy to great hypocrites. And I want us to see that under three headings. I want us to see the character of these hypocrites first of all. And I want you to notice this from verse 16. In verse 16 you have, of course, this exhortation that has five components to it. Wash you, make you clean, etc., etc., cease to do evil. And friend, behind that is the sense that, that they have not done so as of yet. They're not yet clean. And they've not yet begun the practice of doing good. And it goes even further. He says, learn to do well. And and obviously behind that is the idea that they have not yet learned effectually. Whatever they have learned, whatever whatever they have known, has not been in the manner which it ought. Then he says, relieve the oppressed, etc., etc. And so you find that they're neglectful then of of their duties, their second table duties to one another. Now, as you leave verses 16 and 17, then you recognize that the, that the prophet here is giving us another portrait of this generation. And friend, what are we to make of it? What do we make of a people who have not yet learned to do good? A people who have not even begun to practice what they ought. A people, specifically in this text, who, who do not relieve the oppressed, do not undertake for the stranger, the orphan, or the widow. I think, friend, Deuteronomy 24 is quite helpful here. You remember perhaps that there the Lord calls to the people of Israel and he says, Thou shalt not glean 
after you've gleaned the first. And why? It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. But I want you to notice what is subjoined to that commandment. In there, verse 22, the Lord says, And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command thee to do this thing. In other words, what the Lord is saying is, if you remember who you are, you will do the very things that Judah has left undone. If you remember that you are the covenant people of God who have been shown his free mercy, you will act like it. And so, friend, to answer our initial question, what what does all of this look like? It looks like a people who don't look like the covenant people of God. I could leave it there, I suppose. But friend, it's important for us to understand the profundity of such an indictment. It's profound because you remember the generation to which this word comes. This was not a generation that neglected the means of grace. In fact, in all of the indictments that are given to us in this first chapter, neglect, truancy, at the means of grace is not mentioned at all. In fact, as we've already seen last Lord's Day evening, it is their presence in a particular way that is there excoriated. These are not a people who openly protest at the preaching of God's word or the scriptures. Furthermore, this is not a people engaged in syncretism. That is blending the worship of God with the worship of other gods. You don't find that mentioned in the days of Uzziah. While, of course, we know that the high places were still in use, it was the worship of Jehovah alone, albeit not pure, that was maintained. And this is not a generation given to superstition. And yet, this is the indictment that God gives. It becomes even more staggering when you compare this generation with what you find in Israel. You don't find there that they constructed a priesthood like Israel did, contrary to the word of God. You don't find the worship of the Baals among them. You don't find ungodly confederacies there made in the days of Uzziah. And it becomes even more staggering, friend, when you realize that this Judah looks very different in the exterior than the nation surrounding. Oh, the darkness and, and the barbarism to which the nations around them were enthralled. Friend, it's a staggering thing as you read the histories to see how dark, how bleak, how engaged in sin the nations around Judah were at this time. Judah looks utterly different on the surface to all of these. And yet, and yet the Lord says, your hands are full of blood. It's a staggering indictment. And friend, if you appreciate this as the scriptures present this generation to us, you may ask the question, is this unduly harsh? Friend, what you find here, of course, is that the way Judah here is being treated is not according to perception or man's judgment. It's to God's canon. 
the character of these ones are not evaluated relatively. They're evaluated under the law of God. And they're found wanting. What we learn here, friend, is that externals without inward grace really define the hypocrite. Just very briefly, friend, this evening, I want us to see how the word of God communicates that to us. That an external name and profession without inward grace is the very definition of biblical hypocrisy. And it's that which the Lord here excoriates in Judah. First of all, I want you to notice learning. Learning is mentioned in our text, and he says that they have not yet learned to do well. In 2 Timothy 3, we find these words. There the apostle describes those in the Christian church who were ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, they had the scriptures in front of them. And they had what was truly a cognitive understanding of these things, but it never penetrated the heart. It never produced in them that lively and that vital fruit that was brought forth meat for repentance. They learned... They had knowledge, but the kind of knowledge which they had was purely intellectual. It was not truly experiential. Their knowledge is described for us likewise in James 1. A man beholding his natural face in a glass, in which the word of God is that glass. He beholdeth himself, and then goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Friend, an experiential understanding of God's word is is that in which the man sees that the word of God has searched him and he knows him and and he personally applies that which he sees and he hears. And and here we're told that the, the one who is not a doer of the word, one who has not learned aright, these ones hear the word and they leave it where they heard it. They don't carry it with them. And more than that, and this is what is so profound in James 1, they don't allow the word of God to define who they are. God's canon they don't appropriate to themselves. They are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Secondly, I want you to notice in this text that these are derided here for not fulfilling second table duties, that is, duties to their, fellow, to their fellow neighbor. And again, as we look at James 2, you and I see a very graphic picture of this kind of thing. There he speaks of Christians who see their brother or their sister naked, destitute of food. And then James says, And one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be he warmed and filled Notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needful to the body. James concludes, what doth it profit? He's not actually speaking there, the the apostle, of the unprofitability of the statement. It's the unprofitability of the religion of such a one who neglects their second table obligations. Joseph Elaine was a minister in the 17th century perhaps his most well-known work, uh, Call to the Unconverted, has been mightily used by the Lord. But as a young man, um, he was a faithful minister of the gospel. But as you read others, and as they describe his life, those who knew him, one of the things that continues to resurface is the fact that he was not, quote-unquote, he 
was not a first table only man. In other words, he was a man who, as we read there, he had a deep sense of the great advantage or disadvantage accruing to religion by the strict or remiss performance of the duties of the second table. Friend, a hypocrite will not be so inclined. They may insist on first table duties, but they will leave second table duties entirely untouched. This is the indictment that the Lord brings to the generation of which we now read. But finally, friend, I want you to notice here that their character is described in a way that's quite striking. Again, in verse 15, we find that their hands are full of blood. And we might think, of course, I think perhaps we always think when we hear such a statement of the Sixth Commandment, those who have committed murder. And certainly that is how it's used often in the Scriptures. But it would be wrong for us to restrict this text to that sense. And the reason for that is what you find in verse 18. In verse 18, their sins, that is, the plurality of their sins, all that belongs to this indictment, are described as scarlet and red like crimson. Now, friend, I I know I've used this analogy now several times, but, but this is a moment where the prophet hands us the glasses and urges us to see something that we see daily, but to really perceive it aright, and maybe for the first time. What the the prophet here is describing sin as, is as bloody. And he's meaning here the plurality of their sins. All sin is bloody. All sin is vicious. According to the scriptures, not only does it produce death, it is a kind of death. Not only does sin, our sin and your sin, my our sin, your sin, all of it is toward God and in that sense violent toward Him. It's violent toward others. It's violent toward self. All sin is vicious. And what the prophet friend here is doing is he's reminding this generation that seemed so righteous. That their hands are full of blood nonetheless. That the sins of which they are guilty are heinous, vicious crimes against the law of God. And friend, it's now fallen well out of use in the Christian church, but it ought not. Evil has always been described by the Orthodox as the privation of the good. And so sin is as well, friend. Sin is always the removal of that which is good, the vicious removal of that which is right. All sin, yours and mine, is bloody. We'll come back toward the end of our time this evening to revisit that. But the prophet says here, though the hypocrites have such a great name and appearance of good, they are but men of blood. And the question, of course, is do we see ourselves in this text? We see ourselves here. Friend, you and I ought to remember that that this text comes to a reformed church, a literal sense of the word. And it's a dangerous thing when we can't see ourselves in any sense 
in this case. But I want us to hasten to our second heading this evening quite briefly, and that is the calling that we see there. To this generation, the Lord says, wash you, etc., etc., cease to do evil. What does he mean? Well, it's described for us again in verse 19. He describes this exhortation as them being willing and obedient. Now, it's striking, friend, that he doesn't say simply that these ones must be obedient. They must be willing as well. That exhortation that you find in verses 16 and 17 is not only to compliance in any sense, but it is to a willing compliance. (laughs) To illustrate the importance of this, this addition, friend, you recognize that one could render grudgingly and a kind of coerced obedience to a given command. But here the Lord expressly commands their willingness, which belongs to their heart. And, and to what are they to be willing? Well, friend, of course, of course they are to be made willing to all that which God has commanded in his law, to the first and to the second tables. You recognize, friend, that this calling falls right between, well, sorry, it falls on either side of what you find in verse 18, which is this offer of mercy. And friend, you and I, we, however we divide the text, we can't forget that, that the willingness that is here enjoined is their willingness to obey that which God has called them to, as well as taking with the terms of mercy that is offered, the terms of cleansing that are described for us in verse 18. And so the calling that is here tendered to this generation, the calling that is tendered to all hypocrites is this, they are summoned to evangelical obedience. That is, they are summoned to that obedience that flows from taking hold of the offer of mercy given to them in Jesus Christ. However, friend, you you divide the text. It means that. Now, friend, what does evangelical obedience mean? Well, just very briefly, friend, you recognize that, of course, it is an exercise of faith. And that faith flows, first of all, from an acknowledgement of guilt. Friend, it's necessary for those who are to comply with this command that they recognize that the indictment is sound. And for the hypocrite, that is always the hardest thing. They will always resort to man's perception of themselves and not to God's rule. That's the habitual bend. And friend, here here the exhortation is to deal and think reasonably about God's standard and rule. I want you to notice also, friend, that faith necessarily recognizes the impotence of self to overcome that guilt and even to overcome its own pollution. It must of necessity then look only to Christ. It must look to his sufficiency only. And it also, friend, needs to acknowledge that the offer of mercy that is tendered to them is a genuine offer. This, I think, is perhaps a component of evangelical obedience that is often overlooked. Um, our divines before us put it to us this way. 
The faith must acknowledge that this general offer, in substance, is equivalent to a special offer made to everyone in particular. None can really comply with the gospel, the offer of mercy given here, unless they believe that it indeed is genuinely given and it is to be personally appropriated. We can go further. Because, friend, here you recognize that such a faith will produce the works of obedience that are here described. And it is, it is from this faith that that obedience flows. Just, of course, the famous words from James. He says, Their faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. And says James, I will show thee my faith by my works. We'll come to explain further what what is meant there. But friend, what you recognize in this text is that the calling that's enjoined on hypocrites here is a hearty compliance with the grace of God that then produces true obedience, likeness to Jesus Christ. In other words, friend, the exhortation to hypocrites is not to a legalist kind of repentance. It is to a repentance that flows from taking hold of the terms of mercy offered in Jesus Christ. But then thirdly, as we close and finally, you have the conclusion that is there given. In verse 18, the conclusion of those who do comply with these offers of mercy is just that they shall be as white as snow. And friend, you are to recognize that that is both related to the forensic or their legal position as well as their own condition. This is both legal and transformative. Again, friend, it is both pardon and purging. And in verse 19 you find there the Lord describing that there are temporal benefits that are to flow. As he's speaking here to the visible church, they will eat the good of the land. As Calvin, I think, quite rightly remarks, you and I are supposed to see there that he is using these temporal blessings to excite them to see the spiritual blessings that are higher and greater that flow from obedience to these calls to mercy. But in verse 19, you also find annexed what falls to those who refuse and rebel. They will be devoured. Friend, you're supposed to recognize there that that is both temporal and eternal. The visible church there will succumb to God's temporal judgments. And of course, the individuals there will, if they do not repent, fall into eternal perdition. The text is very much like what you find in Deuteronomy 30, where there the Lord says through Moses, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live. A friend, this text leads us, of course, to examination, and so it must. The first question it asks of us, of course, is do we see ourselves in this text at all? A friend, we may not be hypocrites through and through, but surely you and I recognize that we are guilty of hypocrisy in many ways. Surely you and I recognize that daily we need the offer of mercy that's tendered in verse 18. I think it's necessary, friend, as well for us to recognize how the prophet gives to us the glasses to see our own sin here. You know, when 
and you talk to somebody on the street and perhaps you're engaged in an evangelistic conversation with them and you ask them you ask them basically how do you know that you'll go to heaven when you die ultimately and most often you'll find that the answer is something like well i'm a generally good person i've never killed anybody I want you to notice friend that a text like this really obliterates that kind of thinking Friend, in God's sight, all sin is bloody. All sin is red like crimson like scarlet. That means your sin and my sin as well. All sin is vicious. And do we see it that way, friend? Do we see our sins as the prophet would have us? But not only do we see our sins, do you also see, friend, that this is a genuine offer? a genuine and a standing offer this evening. That Christ comes even to those who had taken up the name of his covenant in their lips, but unworthily. He comes even to them. And he offers them after so many years of obstinance, after so many high-handed sins, he offers them mercy. He offers them cleansing both pardon and purgation. Friend, do you see that that's an offer that's tendered to you and to me this evening from his own word? It's still there. And for our comfort, beloved, I want you to notice here in this text that as clearly as we see our sin, as as heinous and sinful as sin now here appears, You recognize that in verse 18, the Lord says very pointedly that his grace is greater than our sin. Even hands red like crimson can be made white like snow. Friend, scarlet and crimson, those those are dyes that that are notoriously difficult to get out of clothing. And so it was in the ancient world as well. But here we find that God's grace is greater still. It indeed can and does cleanse. The exhortation then, friends, as we do close this evening, is, is really that of the text. To comply with these terms of mercy. To own, of course, that the indictment, friend, really does belong to our own souls. To note as well that verse 18 is indeed a genuine offer from the Lord. And that the calling is that we would be a willing and obedient people. The exhortation then is to faith and to evangelical obedience. And what is evangelical obedience? Friend, just very briefly, I'd like to read a quote that I think encapsulates well how the Christian should think about this exhortation. The writer states, Your way to a holy practice is first, and he's speaking here to Christians, He says, to conquer and expel unbelieving thoughts by confidently trusting in Christ and persuading yourselves by faith that his righteousness, spirit, and glory and all his spiritual benefits are yours, that he dwells in you and you in him. Then he goes on to say, how can it rationally be expected that a man will act according to this new state 
without any assurance that he, is in it, that he is in it. Doubtless the knowledge and persuasion of the glory and excellency of our new state in Christ would more elevate the hearts of believers above all sordid slavery to lusts and enlarge them to run cheerfully in the way of God's commandments. And then he adds that the Christian knows the best, knows only in part. And hence it is that the lives of believers fall so much below their holy and heavenly calling. Friend, this calling is a calling to obedience, but it's a calling to obedience in the Lord Jesus Christ, never through the covenant of works. It's a calling to endeavor in his name, to be faithful in our generation. May we heed that. And may we heed that for his own name's sake. That there might be found a people here willing and obedient, even in a declining age. Amen.